Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, brought to you by the spectacular Yamaha R7, a new generation of super sport machine. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Harley-Davidson has just announced the latest CVO versions of its street and road glide models. To say there have been major changes to these classic machines <laughs> would be an understatement. Nick DeSena recently rode both motorcycles in Milwaukee, and he gives us a rundown on what has changed with each one, and his thoughts on whether you need to find around eh, 45 grand to put one of these puppies in your garage. This week's snippet features the Alpine Star's Tech Air 5 vest. TJ Adams bumped into Ariane Fakur at Southern California's Rock Store, and he spent his own hard-earned money on the cutting-edge technology of this safety undergarment. In our second feature segment, TJ Adams talks with Steve Peel. Steve has had a long and interesting career marketing in the motorcycle industry and currently works for the Tucker range of brands. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoyed this episode. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF R7 is your gateway. Discover how the YZF R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. Take a closer look at YamahaMotorsports.com or See the YZF R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. It's a big year for Harley-Davidson. Of course, this is the 120th anniversary for the American V-Twin brand. And, you know, in true fashion, they did kick things off in Milwaukee uh, just about a week and a half ago, give or take with a you know proper bash with live bands and you know full celebration and that sort of thing but really the whole year is sort of celebrating the 120th anniversary now part of that is unveiling a brand new uh, uh cvo update so that is the 2023 harley davidson cvo street glide and cvo road glide now the custom vehicle operations cvo uh, is sort of Harley-Davidson's best of the best. This is where the brand shows, you know, it's best in terms of performance, best in terms of technology and uh, styling and fit and finish. And really, I think that's what CVO is best known for is luxury finishing, you know, to kind of put a pin in it. These motorcycles start out at, let me just confirm the MSRP, so I know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you know, altogether, you know, a, a street glide is going to set you set you back above, you know, forty two thousand dollars. I think with all the surcharges and things like that, the 2023 Harley Davidson CBO Street Glide and Road Glide, uh, respectively, come out to about forty four thousand one hundred ninety nine dollars. So they are a pretty penny, but that's what you can expect with CBO paint. Um, I mean, it's just absolutely flawless. It's, you know, hand done. It's immaculate. It's absolutely insane. But there's plenty to talk about here because realistically, 
the the CVOs are sort of ushering in a new design uh, language for the brand. There's huge changes with the Batwing fairing as well as the Shark Nose fairing for the Street Glide and Road Glide, respectively. There's also updates to the engine. We're now seeing a 121 inch, uh, or, sorry, 121 CI engine come into the fold. It's chassis changes, electronics changes, infotainment changes, and much more. So we went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, rode around the, uh, we'll say, somewhat interesting landscape sometimes, ate all of the cheese curds that we could possibly find. And uh, yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about today. I think you make a good point. CVO is not just about the fit and finish. That's the most obvious thing. But actually, everything on a CVO machine is kind of top of the line. It's always the sort of the biggest engine and, and so on. So what were your what were your thoughts on these bikes? Yeah, overall, they represent a solid step forward in terms of refinement. So let's go ahead and start with the engine, because that's where you always start with a Harley Davidson or any American V-Twin for that matter. We're now dealing with the Milwaukee 8 VVT 121. That's its official name, of course. It produces a claimed 139 foot-pounds of torque at a fairly low and easygoing 3,000 RPM, and then 115 horsepower at 4,500 RPM. Now, just to kind of put it out there, the red line is at 6,300 RPM, but really what introducing variable valve timing has done to the Harley Big Twin is just introduced a level of refinement that we haven't really seen before. And that's interesting, mainly because when the Milwaukee 8 came out, that's exactly what we said. Then that that really proved to the market that Harley could make something that was much smoother, much more refined, much more mature in a lot of ways. You know, it just didn't have the, you know, if you think back to the twin cam era of Harley Davidson engines, where they built lots and lots of torque, uh, good mid-range, but then by the top end, they were trailing off pretty hard. So there's almost no point to run the engines out to the red line. Now, Milwaukee 8 really changed that narrative. You could pull those engines out. You would bang off the rev limiter if you kind of didn't think about it. And, uh, you know, that that sort of narrative thread continues to this day in the Milwaukee 8 VVT 121. The power is, the way it's delivered, you know, I, I mentioned the numbers before, it's 139 foot-pounds of torque. It's not delivered in this way that's sort of shocking and stunning. The, the most shocking and stunning part of it is how smooth and clean it pulls right off the bottom. Um, and it, it just really sort of, to use the operative word here, glides you through the rev range. Um, marketing staff, you're, you're allowed to use that quote for me, by the way. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, the sort of takeaway here is that the the new introduced technology has created something that again is just far more refined and it still has that that sense of harley american v twinness on the palate it isn't a soulless you know sewing machine of an engine it's just it 
offers less engine braking than before. The acceleration, the pull is so much smoother and so much more dialed along with the throttle connection as well. So it really, really helps out in that sense. Um, you know, of course, we're dealing with adjustable ride modes now. Ride bow or throttle has been a thing on Harleys for a number of years now, but ride modes are, are really coming into their own in terms of the, the more recent product lineups. Um, so you have multiple ride modes there, but more importantly is that you can actually customize the throttle maps, engine maps, and um, uh, engine braking maps as well. So the kind of the same really? technology that you'd find on a modern sport bike in a lot of ways. Um, in my opinion, using the sport map, just the raw, untouched preset sport map, it's a little superfluous in a bagger setting. And I said the same thing of the Indian baggers that introduced this feature a couple years back. It's a bagger. I don't really know why I need a sport map, but I'm not going to, you know, uh, belabor the point too much. What I'm really trying to get to is the fact that you can customize everything. So for me, I was able to kind of build my perfect map, we'll say, by putting the bike in sport mode, going to the least engine braking, and then using the most uh, throttle smoothing, we'll say. I'm not entirely sure if that's the correct uh, uh, nomenclature. I think it was actually throttle softness. But essentially, you can take the edge off that sport map to make it less snatchy, because that was my takeaway of the sport map. It was just a little too aggressive off the bottom um, during that initial crack. But here's the thing. We're talking about a CVO bagger, and I'm, I'm discussing adjustable throttle maps, which is <laughs> kind of crazy to me overall. Right. Seems a little disingenuous, doesn't it? I mean, you know, bagger riders typically are not going to be trying to break Kyle Wyman's lap record around Laguna Seca. You know, a CVO is bought, you know, for an image and, and for its ride and for its sophistication. Well, yeah, but the sophistication thing is definitely there, and we're getting into that now. So riders can customize these maps, you know, offer a, a tour map or a, a tour map and a rain map. I think those are actually very applicable. The sport map, is it a bridge too far? I don't know. You guys discuss yourselves, um, but, but the, at least you have alternate, so that's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's kind of the the point we're getting at. I think more impressively, it's just that they're introducing these technologies into the baggers, and we can assume that this will eventually become uniform across all of Harley Davidson's offerings as new models roll out. Now, let's kind of focus on the engine again and sort of its technologies because there's a lot of new stuff here. We'll sort of start with the top down. Of course, there's a new intake, new air intake system completely that allows much more positive airflow. Uh, it is a 121 CI engine, as I mentioned before. It actually shares the same piston size as the 117, but the stroke has increased pretty dramatically. So that's how they're getting that displacement uh, difference. Yeah, so kind of moving into that, then you have your VVT system. And I would attribute a lot of this engine's smoothness and character to that. Now, the VVT, as you know, is seen across many different engine platforms and many different uh, applications, automotive, commercial, motorcycles, et cetera, et cetera. And the 121CI sports a new cam, higher lift, longer duration. 
that interacts with the uh, VVT system to allow basically a, a 40 degree range of sweep across the crankshaft, which corresponds to the single, single cam that rotates 20 degrees. So that's a lot of numbers and whiz-bang engineering stuff that really just we can sum up as it allows the engine to have a much broader spectrum of use and really nail that fueling and engine response at a larger uh, spread of, of RPM. So when you're super low, the, the valve timing can change a bit to accommodate those, uh, those speeds as it can when it's up high. Now, the difference between the 121 CI engine and say the Revolution Max is that the, the variable valve timing system here um, changes all of the valve timing simultaneously. So according to the literature, intake and exhaust timing uh, events advance together on one camshaft. Now, if you think about the Revolution Max engine, which is in the, the Pan America, and a smaller version, the 975T, is also in the Nightster. The big Revolution Max engine uh, advances uh, intake and exhaust valves independently. Um, so, you know, in that sense, it's actually a, a bit more advanced in terms of its capability than this. But according to Harley engineers, you know, that type of technology just isn't needed for this. And when we think about what a Revolution Max engine is doing, uh, it's powering the Pan America. Uh, that is more indicative of a modern V-twin, we'll say, a, a sport V-twin to just kind of put a quick pin in it. And the 121 CI engine we have here is, well, it's a kind of an old school, big twin feel in a lot of ways. But as I mentioned before, far smoother, you know, far easier to ride. And <laughs> the power is definitely there. The, the 139 claimed figure that I mentioned, you know, that's not nothing. Um, I think the most <laughs> impressive thing about it is it, it takes all of that power and makes it extremely user-friendly. And the fact that it, the power is just quite prodigious. You just roll on the gas, any gear, any time, and it, you know, shoves this bike forward. Um, so yeah, yeah, the engine is quite good. Uh, there is a new cooling system. Uh, things route to the rear cylinder first. As you guys know, on V-twin engines, the rear cylinder bank is often the hottest. It is not in direct airflow. It's also trapped underneath the fuel tank and bodywork and other things like that. So it tends to, to just run much hotter. So uh, things run from your radiator to the rear cylinder bank forward to the front cylinder bank, which is exposed to the wind. And then the radiator now sits kind of underneath the, the front wheel, we'll say, or not underneath it, but right behind it, discreetly located. And realistically, if you were to look at these bikes and not know any better, they would still appear to be air-cooled engines in a lot of ways. They, they retain that old-school Harley-Davidson look and feel. Um, so like Triumph, the brand, um, you know, both of the brands have done really well to hide the fact that, you know, these are modern liquid-cooled or liquid-head-cooled engines. Um, Absolutely. And I think that's a good thing. 
you know, obviously because the faithful among Harley Davidson circles will, you know, shake their fist at, at the idea of, of liquid cooling, although the benefits are kind of obvious. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> here nor there. Yeah. Um, at any rate, you know, that's kind of the, the engine in a nutshell. I get, I think the last thing to touch on is that there is an upgraded shift drum. And I'd say the, the classic chunkiness of the, the six-speed gearbox isn't necessarily gone. I would still describe it as a hearty meal, you know, um, but it's just easier to find neutral. It doesn't feel as sort of clunky and agricultural as older gearboxes may illustrate. And so a lot of these things, I really hope trickle down into the coming line of, of road glide and street glide. Now there is a, a quote from Harley Davidson employees that goes something like, we do not discuss future products. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll hear that in a number of different iterations, but it's, you know, kept mostly tight. And uh, Harley Davidson is notoriously tight lipped about all of its, uh, you know, upcoming products. So will these things trickle down into other road glide and street glide iterations? I don't know, but as, history has shown us CVO tends to lead the pack and what the CVO gets, everything else eventually receives at one point or another, or at least in some iteration. Um, you know, so again, that's the engine in a nutshell. And this thing is absolutely lovely. The torque is immense, but the, the refinement, it really takes things up a notch even when compared to the, the M8s that sort of blew us away when we first got on them. Um, so that's really important. Now, I guess it'd be a good idea to, to talk about the street glide and the, the road glide respective of each other, uh, because there, there's some different things going on in terms of the looks, definitely. Sure, there always have been. And essentially one is a handlebar mounted fairing and one is a frame mounted fairing. So, you know, but you did hint earlier that the, the batwing fairing has had some big changes. So I'm curious to hear what those are. Yeah, they well, they both had big changes overall stylistically. The sort of the, the trouble with Harley Davidson sales is that they're always competing against themselves. Uh, Harley Davidson has colored within, we'll say, very defined lines stylistically. You know, if you look at generational uh, street glide and road glide for that matter, which is a much newer platform comparatively. You know, these things have looked relatively similar throughout the years, um, going back quite a while. And, you know, that's, that's, that's tough, right? Because you're, you've sort of built an icon and then you kind of can't deviate away from it. You know, it's, oh, right. it, you know, and, and that's, that's the trouble, but with the, the current gen of CVO, uh, street glide and road glide they've really really changed things and not to an extreme if you look at the the current gen street glide uh, cvo and uh, cvo road glide they they're still unmistakably street glide and road glide you know you see the batwing fairing and you can see the shark nose road glide fairing um and it's it's obvious but these things look much more modern. Brad Richards, VP of design, he's been with Harley Davidson for a number of years at this point. 
Um, the guy just is Harley Davidson through and through really cares about the product. A uh, very interesting dude as well. You know, they, they started with these sketches and the, the whole theme of it was to introduce something that, that promoted or evoked a more fast quote unquote response. And if you look at the, the CBO street and road glide respectively, they do seem much sleeker. They're, I would say much more aggressively profiled and just to kind of, you know, tie things in a bow, it is a much more modern looking bagger overall. So while it does retain the, the stylistic cues of the, the, the bat wing fairing, as well as the shark nose fairing, there are obvious differences. The things that really stand out for me are integrating the turn signals into the fairing, making this long swept, uh, you know, uh, indicator on the on the bat wing fairing specifically, so the street glide. And sort of the same thing is kind of built into the road glide, but to a different extent where the the uh, the road glide fairing kind of has these little winglets that come off the new LED headlamp. Um, in either case, that that stylistic trend trails all the way back through the fuel tank, which now offers kind of a crease on the top of it on either side. And uh, uh, Brad mentioned during the presentation that that was really just to highlight the paint quality and kind of give some texture and 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 something for the, the viewer to appreciate because there's a beveled edge. So you can actually see the paint in, in the lights and, and really get to examine it. Okay, kind of a weird little thing, but I definitely saw it when I was just kind of uh, cruising around on Milwaukee roads because I don't know if you guys know this, but Milwaukee is very grid-like. There's a lot of straight. <laughs> yeah. And the 90 degree corners. So so these things handle really well <laughs> when you're just turning 90 degrees. Um, but all joking aside, we'll continue on. Now, sitting behind the new fairing, uh, Harley Davidson is claiming for the street glide specifically, you know, there's something like uh 60% less uh, wind turbulence. And really I'm, I'm willing to take that number at face value because you, you do sit in a, a poculent, uh, uh, I said poculence, that's not a word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you sit in a, a pocket of undisturbed air in a lot of ways. You have multiple adjustable vents, uh, some fork mounted vents, as well as the, the main center vent uh, prior, it was called the split stream vent. Do not believe it's called the split stream vent anymore. It's also on the new fairings, much more prominent. So you can get, you know, airflow and control the airflow as, as you'd like. It doesn't become sweltering. You know, you, you still get some positive airflow. You're just in a good bubble of protection, which for a touring motorcycle, whether we're talking about street glide or road glide CVO, that's what you need. You're hitting long miles. You may be hitting inclement weather. Wind protection is definitely a thing. Now, we can talk about sort of the core differences between street glide and road glide now. And street glide's riding position is a bit more closer. I would say you have a better connection with the front ends because the handlebar's a little bit lower. And you're sort of drawn into the front ends a little more. So it kind of gives you a bit more feedback through the fork. 
Now that is the fork mounted fairing on the street glide. And some would argue that by attaching the fairing to the fork, you're adding weight to it. So it does change the steering dynamics a hair. You can feel a little bit more of that weight through the fork when compared to a road glide. And in addition, it can be influenced by crossed winds. Now that's not something I experienced when we were riding around in Milwaukee, but from past experiences with uh, street glide and road glide, I do know that that's a thing. Is it significant? Uh, you know, depending on how gale force the winds are, I guess it could be. But to me, it's just sort of coloring the conversation. I don't think it's, you know, a huge difference. Road glide, they've changed the handlebar setup completely. Uh, they've really gone away from the the current gen or, or 2022 model year sort of wheelbarrow handlebars that are quite backswept and sort of make you feel like you're holding onto screwdrivers on both, both hands. <laughs> um, the handlebars are also adjustable uh, within a range. So you can just kind of move them up and down uh, as you see fit. So you can almost, almost push them all the way up in sort of, sort of a, a mini ape hanger setting or put them nice and low. You don't have to change brake lines or do anything. You can just adjust the positioning. So that's really nice. Uh, I'd say the CVO handlebar position on the road glide is much more comfortable than the prior gen or current gen, you know, standard road glide and road glide special and stuff like that. Um, now the road glide, again, that is a frame mounted fairing. Arguably the bike handles a little bit more spiritedly, but like I mentioned before, it just kind of colors the conversation. I don't see them as this night and day difference that some, some people will you know, will claim, I, it's just not there for me. Um, the main thing that I noticed on the road glide versus the street glide, and I've said this time and time again, is that the street glide, the infotainment system is kind of right there, front and center in your face. You can reach it, touch it because it is a touch screen, uh, that new 12.3 inch uh, touch screen display. The road glide is set way further back. It's actually kind of a stretch to get to. So I've always kind of found that a little curious on the road glide. It's actually hard to reach for, for me and I don't necessarily have little dinosaur T-Rex arms. Um, <laughs> at any rate, that's what it is. So when you're talking about road glide versus street glide, the differences are just gonna be with the, the actual mounting of the fairing and then your handlebar positioning. I would say to sum it up, a little bit more front end feedback from the street glide just kind of why I always gravitate towards that bike. The road glide, you're sat back a little bit more. You're sit, you're kind of propped up in a slightly more upright riding position, depending on how you adjust the bars of the new CVO. And then everything else from the, we'll say the, you know, from your waist down is all the same. Um, you know, they did change the seating position a little bit. Um, apparently the seat is rotated forward just a hair to unload some weight from your spine. Uh, you know, having ridden some of the older uh, road glide models when we were in Milwaukee, the following day when we did a, a factory tour, I would say they're in within earshot of each other. It is a palpable difference, but again, okay, not strain too far. Really just kind of takes that edge off when you're sort of droning down the highway. It's still, you know, it's a touring bike. It's an American touring bike. You, you got your nice big floorboards, 
it kind of sat in a commanding position. It's, it's all good. Uh, seat height is a little higher, 28 inch range, a bit higher than, than other road glides and street glides and things like that. Again, road glide and street glide seat heights are pretty much exactly the same. Um, and, and you, you really got to, for me, that, that's a low seat height. I ride a lot of sport bikes, adventure bikes, literally everything that we review here. So right. 28 degrees is still low to me in the touring or sorry, in the American V twin touring category, it's actually edging towards the high side. However, now that we're on the subject of seat heights, we can actually get into the suspension. Big stuff happening. Big stuff. <laughs> okay. So obviously an improvement. Is there any, is it just simply uh, upgraded suspension or is it, is there a radical change to anything? I would say yes to both. Uh, this is the first time that the, the touring platform has ever seen an inverted fork. So we're now seeing a wow. completely. That is a big change. Yeah. Before you had the big fork skirts and, you know, traditional forks, things like that. Now you have an inverted fork that accommodates radial mounted Brembo calipers. And, you know, that, that really, to me, and discussing with uh, some of my colleagues there, I, I would say this is what we wanted to see on the street and road glide STs that we reviewed last year um, when we had the opportunity to ride Kyle Wyman's championship winning uh, race bagger. Or was that two years ago now? I don't know. Time means <laughs> nothing to me. Um, <laughs> at any rate, you know, the going to an inverted fork offers a, a handful of things. Inverted forks are inherently more stiff than traditional forks. Uh, you're just not going to get as much flex and no. things like that. And that can actually be a problem depending, but we're not going to get into it. Um, well, actually, we will get into it. If sometimes adding stiffness just creates harshness, et cetera, et cetera, may, might not actually be the way to go. However, adding a bit of stiffness to the, the touring bikes isn't necessarily a bad thing. And that doesn't really come through here. What comes through is just higher quality damping from the fork, and better bump absorption overall. Now, again, it is relative to what I've experienced with the street glides and road glides in the past in various iterations where we're talking about special CVO or standard, you know, uh, models, but it just absorbs things a bit better and seems to track uh, well. Now the big change here, the one that I actually want to kind of highlight is that the rear suspension travel has increased to three inches. Uh, again, just like the front end, it is a Showa setup and you have preload damping adjustment on the right hand as well as the left hand your right hand you're going to pop off your bag and that's going to be your main spring preload uh, adjustment that's a traditional uh, lock and collar setup that's where you're going to set up your your main parameters for riding so if you're if you know you're going to be riding two up um you know single whatever that's where you're going to set your main preload setup. Okay. Now on the left-hand side, you actually have a remote adjuster. And according to HD staff, uh, you know, they reiterated, reiterated the fact that you could adjust for maybe about a hundred pound difference. So say <clears throat> you're on a trip, you're going, 
you know, single or solo, you've already dialed in your preload for that, that situation or those situations. And then you're gaining luggage, you're losing luggage, whatever. Um, you have that, that quick remote adjuster on your left-hand side sits right behind your, your, uh, your left leg there. And you can just make some, some, some pretty easy going changes right there. Now with the additional uh, travel, and that's a, a noticeable bump over prior generation street glides, which, you know, hover in that two inch, two inch plus range sometimes, you know, three inches is still not a lot of suspension travel overall. If you compare it to the grand scheme of touring bikes and sport bikes and whatever, and everything in motorcycling. Um, but for Harley Davidson and American V-Twins in general, that is an improvement. Bump absorption is better. Uh, the damping quality is much, much better than prior gen. Um, you know, that's one of the things that I did notice when I rode an, an older generation or a, sorry, a non-CVO uh, road glide is just the, the damping quality over rough, rough asphalt exponentially better just exponentially better. Now I'm saying all this, but I also have to make a comment here. This is the suspension that we should have been getting from Harley Davidson for a long time. So I will give credit where credit is due. Kudos. Thank you, Harley Davidson. The fact is we should have had this a while ago. Um, and I'll take it a step further too. For the price of this motorcycle, and if you look at the touring class as a whole, not necessarily just the American V-Twin touring class, because I, I find that, that observation to be a little myopic. When you look at touring, you know, you're going to be looking at stalwarts like the Honda Goldwing, for example, the BMW K1600 class of motorcycles, and also basically half of BMW's motorcycle lineup. <laughs> There's a lot of touring bikes in there. Um, you're looking at motorcycles from the European or Japanese competitors that offer electronic suspension or semi-active suspension. I think for the CVO stature, that would be a fitting addition. Now, I'm happy to take this upside down fork and better rear shock setup for sure. Absolutely. Not going to say that. The old stuff, not the best. But I think we really should be looking at semi-active suspension because it is seen on Pan America. Right. I think it would be excellently placed in a touring application. So will we see it next year? According to Harley Davidson staff, we do not discuss, discuss future product. It's become a game for me. I, I just ask questions knowing that I will not get an answer. <laughs> so it's, it's very cool. Um, at any rate, you know, suspension wise, yeah, improvements. I still think that there's there's room to grow here. But uh, yeah, this is this is probably the first time that I've been on a bagger and not been able to complain about the shocks. So yeah. Okay. okay. And then to kind of sort of wrap it up in that sense, you know, if you look at the CVOs, the 2023 CVO lineup right now, everything is new on these bikes. Um, except for the frame. There's also some like probably some mounting modifications to the frame, but that's all new. The, the sort of the cat or sorry, the, the machined and, and wire spoke wheels. Um, those are all new. They look amazing. I mean, that's, that's sort of the CVO thing is just excellent finishing. Um, 
and yeah. and that's that that's really why you get a CVO. Otherwise, you could get any other street glide and road glide and kind of be just as happy in a lot of respects. But it's those those attention to detail moments that you see in a CVO. This is one of them. A uh, 19 inch front and 18 inch rear. Uh, you know, it's a a machined cast aluminum rim that also features integrated uh, lace spoke wheels, and it is a tubeless tubeless wheel for anyone that's curious. But they look amazing, of course. And then you know we have the the Brembo brakes up front. They are now radial mounted, so that is a completely modern setup. I would say that you know a lot of your braking performance, and I've mentioned this before on other other motorcycle podcasts that we've done and in reviews, a lot of your braking performance is actually going to be dictated by the master cylinder that your motorcycle is equipped with, and they've updated everything throughout. Uh, Braking feel is still very much in a touring bike realm. You're not going to get the snap of Kyle Wyman and Travis Wyman's race bikes. Um, but, you know, that said, the braking confidence is up a bit. There's more braking power. There's more feedback and feel. In addition, there's something that I've complained about for a really long time. Uh, there's an adjustable brake lever now. And it's subtle. It's kind of the adjuster sort of kept on the backside, so you can't actually see it from the front. But it is adjustable, and that's hmm. that's a really weird thing to complain about. But I've said it like the entire time I've done this job, so that's cool. <laughs> so, right. I, I don't think they were necessarily listening to me specifically. I, I know a lot of people, uh, you know, complain about that sort of thing. I mean, overall, it really sounds as though you know harley davidson have have brought these bikes up into a, a performance level that lives up to their looks um and that's probably maybe even as a direct result of uh of the bagger racing series and the interest shown by everybody they finally decided you know what we need to make these things go as well as they uh as well as they look they sound like really great all-round motorcycles so, okay, so fill us in on the infotainment system and uh, we'll call it good. Yeah, so the infotainment system is all new. And the takeaway here is that the CVO in infotainment systems really just make the current generation of, of uh, uh, Grand American Touring motorcycles from Harley-Davidson seem extremely dated. I know that's kind of harsh to say, but it's true. The analog clocks... Uh, you know, on the on the road glide, especially the gear indicator is this little kind of rinky-dink LCD thing that I've always sort of glared at disparagingly. <laughs> um, and the street glide, it's, you know, integrated up top in one of the clocks, but it's kind of difficult to see. And it does look the part. It looks old school. It looks traditional. Yeah, that's fine. But... When you really get into it, the the modern display is it's just superior in terms of finding cool. information, sourcing information, looking at it, and keeping you you know engaged with the ride without distracting you. Um, you know all the connectivity types that you could imagine are supported. They are running a brand new operating system that they call Skyline. Uh, they really missed an opportunity with calling it Skynet, you know, for that Terminator connection. <laughs> kind of bums me out. 
but uh, whatever. <laughs> anyway, um, right. it is a 12.3 inch measured diagonally uh, TFT screen. That's uh, right. according to the brand, 90% bigger than the 6.5 inch boom exclamation point box GTS screens uh, featured on prior uh, CVO models. I believe that's the same screen that's on current gen specials and standards. Uh, at any rate, it's much brighter. It's much easier to read. It is a touchscreen display, as we've mentioned before, um, and also supports uh, Apple CarPlay. Uh, Android Auto is no longer supported because apparently Android Auto pulled out of the motorcycle market, I would assume, because uh, Google was like, hey, there's not enough licensing for this, so like we don't care. But also Google's known for just like making software and then abandoning it randomly, just on a whim. Right. So, you know, whatever. Anyway, I think the new uh, cockpit layout, whether we're talking street glide or road glide, is far cleaner, far easier to uh, understand and sort of wrap your heads around. It has changed the button layout <clears throat> with your hand controls, uh, you know, on the left and right switch gear. Your left switch gear is pretty much going to be dictated to motorcycle functions, uh, exploring navigation ride modes, menu systems, et cetera, et cetera. Right hand is going to be uh, communication and uh, audio uh, primarily. Uh, one thing that I did notice with some colleagues that you know have a smaller hand size, I wear medium gloves, so I'm actually kind of on the smaller size, does take a good bit of reach to get over to some of those buttons now because those are some big chunky switch gear. But you know, if you're you know a big bagger riding boy, probably won't have too much of a problem um, <laughs> so you know it, it is going to be subjective i actually like the new switch gear i think it's easy to navigate feel like it's a, a bit more modern and and cohesive with uh you know other modern touring motorcycles um and there there's also voice recognition that's more relative to what we'd see in today's automotive market so you no longer need an, an additional Bluetooth module that's standard on the CVO bikes. Uh, you just pair your 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 uh, Bluetooth communication device to the bike. You know, hit the calm thing, and then say general prompts like "find me a gas station" or uh, you know okay. whatever you can think that you know is programmed into your system. Um, you know, usually asking it for illicit drugs and stuff like that doesn't work, but uh, <laughs> so yeah there's there's that type of functionality and it is becoming a lot more on par or you're starting to see some parity with what you'd see in most cars at this point and i think that's a very good step because a lot of infotainment systems whether we're talking about touring or adventure motorcycles they feel pretty wonky in comparison to what you'd find in like most economy cars at this point <laughs> So, uh, right. yeah, uh, I'm glad to see that Harley Davidson is actually a front runner in this category. Um, right. And then, you know, the styling stuff, you know, not to kind of hammer it home because everyone is going to have their own opinions, but the, you know, we touched on the, on the, on the fairings, we touched on the tanks, the bags is something, the, the bags are something that I did forget about. Although I would describe them as sort of the high and tight versions uh, CVOs have always run those uh, extended bags that sort of hang down over the pipes. Um, these look 
aesthetically smaller. And, uh, you know, according to Harley Davidson staff, it's sort of to kind of tap into that, that performance bagger vibe. Um, and we, we saw that on the, the road and street glide um, STs as well. Cool. These bags actually carry a little bit more volume than the current generation. So they're actually a bit more, according to the literature, three-dimensional. They're a little bit more kind of bulbous on the top and the sides, kind of come out a little bit more. And then they really trail into the, the integrated LED headlights in the rear. So you no longer have that um, freestanding unit that's mounted to the the rear fairing. Overall, the 2023 Harley-Davidson Stevio Street and Road Glide motorcycles are a huge step up. You know, you are paying a pretty penny for, for paint and finishing that is, I don't want to say second to none, but it's pretty tough to see other motorcycle manufacturers produce uh, things of this quality and this consistency. CVO really is one of the best and finest examples of luxury motorcycling that we have in the two-wheeled market. You know, BMW with its R18 and things like that is, it's definitely in the conversation. Uh, Honda is up there as well with its top tier offerings in terms of just actual finishing execution. But in terms of you know, paint quality and the absolute luxurious finishing, Harley-Davidson has really stood out to me as well. And, and I would say Triumph is in that conversation too, but they don't offer anything that's, that's really up to this, this cut. You know, in terms of the performance, the engine, the chassis, the braking, the technology, it is indicative of what we expect of CEO. And I think this is a solid step up. Yes, it is expensive. There's absolutely no doubt. Um, but uh, that's also been CVO since day one, baby. You're going to be painful. Yeah. But, you know, that's kind of the thing. It's sort of a, CVO is kind of a lifestyle choice to me. It's not, you're not just getting a road glide or a street glide. You're getting a CVO. It's kind of a different thing. And I feel like that that takes a, a, a different mindset as well. So list price for the street glide is a uh, $42,000. $999. So call 43. There's also a $1,200 surcharge. Um, Road Glide is also priced uh, equally. And then you also have the color schemes. Uh, the silver that you'll see promoted in our first look stories pretty heavily. That's the base color. And then you have the other colorway, Whisking Eat with Raven Metallic. $6,000 for paint. Wow. Six grand. That said, that is definitely a $6,000 paint job. I mean, it looks <laughs> absolutely flawless to the point where I'm like, man, I kind of don't want to ride behind people. Feel bad. They, it, it's genuinely good. At any rate, that's 2023 Harley-Davidson, CVO Street, and Road Glide in a nutshell. They sound amazing. One small step for motorcycling, one giant leap for Harley-Davidson. Okay. Sure. <laughs> All right. Hey, thanks for your insight and information as always. They sound like incredible motorcycles. This week's snippet features the Alpine Stars Tech Air 5 vest. TJ Adams bumped into Ariane Fakur at Southern California's Rock Store, and he spent his own hard-earned money on the cutting-edge technology of this safety undergarment.
I'm here at the rock store and I've just met this great guy. What's your name? Arian. My name is Arian. Arian, and he's great wearing, meeting you. <laughs> wearing the Alpine Stars Tech Air five. under jacket. Tech Air 5. Tech Air 5. There you go. Okay, so tell me what you just told me about this. So, uh, this jacket is the newest of its kind and uh, what it does first of all uh, unlike the old one where it was like a wife beater this actually covers up part of the arm so it actually protects your shoulders as well um, it does it is not attached to the bike it, it's a, it's a standalone uh, system you just have to make sure that it's charged before you leave a house what it does is it has a latch up front obviously and Firstly, it has to be zipped up all the way. And once it's zipped up, you just put the latch on and a green light goes on on the bottom. It has a, like a literally red on the bottom, yellow, and then green. Once it's green- And so that means it's ready to go. Exactly. Once it's green, that means it's ready to go. It has two modes. There's a street mode, and then there is a uh, race mode. Street mode is just any um, fall, any hard hit will make the airbag go off. The um, racing mode is more like, you know, up to 18 miles per hour, it doesn't go off. Obviously, if you want to be in the streets, you want to be in the street mode, because just in case if somebody hits you or some, something happens that you couldn't... Uh, yeah, anticipate. like someone could open a car door on you, but if you're in race mode, you don't want it to go off when you're just exactly. making a move exactly. on the bike. Exactly. And uh, the way it goes is uh, it, has, uh, it has a very nice good protective back part so you don't need to do a secondary inside your jacket he already has that and it has um it has two canisters that um pop um the airbag and once god forbid if in case it's pop somebody hits you 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 fall anything like that the company refills it up to three times free of charge and then the fourth time they will charge like about 200 bucks and service the whole thing so it's such an amazing investment it's it's only 800 bucks approximately depending on where you get it from but it's seriously it makes me feel safer while riding there are multiple videos online about it absolutely amazing um i truly 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 feel a lot safer riding with it well i like hearing straight from an actual user i mean it doesn't look too bulky either. Do you find it goes under all your jackets? No, I mean, I, I'm wearing a jacket on top of it, as hot as Southern California is. Safety's first. I, um, not to uh, bring any bad energy into this, but I did crash, and if I didn't have my gear minus this, of course, I didn't have this at the time, I would have been torn to pieces. So um, I'm not going to take that lightly. I do wear a jacket on top of this, but it all depends on the rider. If um, you know, I, I like my elbows to be protected as well as my skin, so. In our second feature segment, TJ Adams talks with Steve Peel. Steve has had a long and interesting career marketing in the motorcycle industry and currently works for the Tucker range of brands. I had this opportunity early in my career to really be focused on the interaction of customers with products. And for me, it was, you know, one of the first assignments that I had when I started at Harley-Davidson was to help create the experience of test riding a motorcycle. And at this time, so I started at Harley-Davidson in the fall of 1979 and at that point, it was really hard for customers to test ride a bike. 
uh, even at dealerships and dealerships in many ways said, I'm not going to let you ride this bike until you pay for it. And so, you know, the customer was less informed, the, the, the intricacies of one model versus another were harder to understand because you didn't experience them. And, and back then we shortly after I started at Harley, we did what I believe is the first large scale demonstration ride event for motorcycles. And for those people who are, you know, who know Harley model history, it was a, a bike called the Tour Glide, which had just been introduced. That was the predecessor of today's Road Glide. And we took a fleet of them to a rally in Riodosa, New Mexico, and allowed individuals to just go out on a ride. And, you know, we told them the route we'd like them to take. It, we didn't bog the thing down with groups and you have to ride the same speed as somebody else. It's essentially, here's the keys, go try it out and see what you think. That motorcycle was dramatically different from for Harley. And, it, and I think that one of the reasons that Harley got past the reputation that haunted them through the, you know, 60s and 70s was because they started getting people closer, you know, to the product. And one of the ways they did that was, you know, was through test rides. Sounds fantastic. It's hard to think now that that wasn't something that was in place. It seems so obvious. And yet you've introduced that. Yeah, when you go to rallies, you know, go to Daytona or Sturgis or or any of the big rallies where the manufacturers are and you see the big rigs with fleets of motorcycles out there, you know, ready for people to test. It was it was unheard of. The rallies of, you know, the 70s and into the early 80s were were more about, you know, get together, hang out, you know, party a little bit, go for a ride. And I think doing demonstration rides open the door to manufacturers to to better connect with consumers and for consumers it was a real opportunity because you got to you know you got to ride the bike before you had to put your money down on the counter and that's a big expenditure your motorcycle was probably the second only to well perhaps a car but i was gonna say your house and home yeah so it's a big expenditure. You'd want to have a, a try at it, wouldn't you? Yeah. And it's a passion thing. You know, you know yourself that motorcycles are about the excitement, the passion that people have, because nobody really has to have a motorcycle. But, you know, you get them because you love the experience on two wheels or you love the technology or you love racing or you love the off-road experience. And it ties in with so such a personal thing that, you know, to not be able to test ride was a big deal. And Harley, to their credit, you know, we took what we did at rallies and events and said to our, to, to Harley dealers, it's like, Hey, you know, you really need to be doing this within your dealerships. And we helped pioneer the change of dealership insurance. You know, we helped dealers understand, you know, cause dealers oftentimes would say it's not covered under my insurance. And then we'd say, well, let's help you get better insurance so that your customers can take test rides. And now I can't imagine, certainly on the Harley side and the, you know, I'd say even on the V-twin world, it's pretty unheard of not to be able to take a test ride. And I think in the metric world, it's, it's pretty much the same way right now. Yeah. So you enabled those dealers. You sort of, I mean, they're the lifeline to the customers, potential customers. And yeah, you enabled them to be able to offer that 
as you say, experience. It is such an emotive thing. Buying a motorcycle is from the heart. It doesn't matter how much you look at the facts and the figures and the practicality. You go along and you have a look and ride one, and that's the one you choose, the one you fall in love with. Certainly, certainly. And the data says, you know, there's there's very, very few people that walk into a dealership the first time and say, oh, I'm going to get that bike. You know, we know, I know from my history when I was at Harley-Davidson that it's a multi-step process from the first time you visit a dealership, you know, to, you know, to online research, to talking to other riders and friends, to connecting with the right dealer and things like that. There's a, you know, it's, that's how we know how personal it is because it, you know, it's not a, purchase on a whim because people want the right bike and the uh so and that's where you know there's dealerships just exactly what you said that's the lifeline dealer you find the right person at a dealership who takes care of you and answers your questions and understands you it's like those those people earn your business you know multiple times if you've if you purchase motorcycles again yeah i would agree it's a relationship it's an ongoing development so where did you take, I mean, Harley-Davidson, I have to say at this point, have got the biggest brand loyalty that I I know of. People who ride them, those customers, once you've, you know, sold them their dream, let's say, oh. <laughs> introduced them to their dream, yeah. then they are with Harley-Davidson for life. And I'm sure people listening on here, the Harley-Davidson listeners will be agreeing with that. They're just through and through and through fans. To, to kind of put up historical perspective on that and a connection, you know, so I, as you know, I was involved with starting the Harley owners group, but it goes well in advance of that. And I remember, you know, just exactly at the, you know, that within the first months of me starting at Harley Davidson, there had been problems, quality problems at Harley in the sixties and into the seventies. I met customers who said, I think that problem was me because I didn't pay close enough attention to the break-in procedure, or I didn't have the oil changes exactly on time. And, you know, because they love their Harley so much that they didn't want to put any negative aura on it. They, you know, they said it was me. It wasn't the bike. It was me. So that loyalty and that connection to the product came in from well before I was involved. And I think that, you can go as far back as you want. You can say in the 1950s when Harley was the only American motorcycle company and in the 40s when so many Yanks were in Europe, you know, fighting and the only motorcycles they were exposed to were Harleys and came back. All that, all that history stuff, in my experience, I saw that loyalty. And I think when I was asked to start the Harley Owners Group, that was just to say, hey, you know, the, there's a loyalty out there. Let's take that another step and let's create an experiential group that will further connect customers to the brand. And we would talk about the fact that we want to be so close to customers that they would never consider owning another brand of motorcycle. And we did that, you know, hog as it started and, you know, as, as it's operating now is one of those things that I would say fills your inbox with information and connection about product and about activities and things like that. And then 
when you're writing, it it identifies you as somebody loyal to Harley Davidson, and then this tremendous amount of events that are organized by by Harley Davidson and Harley Davidson dealers and by local chapters of the Harley Owners Group, you know, all of those things feed that because because what happens is when you're riding a Harley, when you become part of Hog as a riding group and a local chapter. What happens is your passion for riding and your friend base all kind of melts, right? And so all of your friends become the people that you ride with, all of the, you know, the and more and more of the people you know are the people that you go to events with. And then you think about, oh my goodness, if I switched brands of motorcycle or if I couldn't be part of this group, I lose a big part of what's important to me in my life. And that's the other people, you know, that make my life, you know, so special. Yeah, it's like forming Hog, the Harley Davidson's own group. You've made a family affair of of the whole of owning a motorcycle and being part of that community. Exactly, exactly, and that and in that connection, and it's not just in the U.S. It's you know I've been to Hog events in Australia and Japan and throughout Europe, and you know and. In many cases, I think in other parts of the world, outside of the United States, that loyalty to Harley-Davidson and to their friends who are Harley riders are stronger than in the U.S. Because in a smaller world of, you know, when you go to Japan, you know, there are far fewer Harley-Davidson motorcycles. And so it really is even more special to connect with this much smaller group, you know, of passionate individuals about a brand. So I've seen that you know, that loyalty around the world, but it's especially strong in places where Harley-Davidson maybe isn't as much of a, you know, a, a consumer name that, you know, is as familiar. So That's awesome. I mean, that's a huge assignment that you've taken on or you took on all those years ago, and you've really made it into something incredible. And for that, you were recognized, yeah. you're invited to the Sturgis, uh, join the Motorcycle Hall of Fame. So that's... Yeah, that was- Nobody expects ever to be inducted into a Hall of Fame. And that was like, I, when I got the call, it's like, are you calling the right guy? You know, I'm not sure. <laughs> so the, uh, yeah. And that was, I had, you know, a couple of opportunities during the, my 35 years at Harley, because early on when I was asked, you know, I always tell the story that I was working in marketing at Harley. I had a great boss, a guy named, that many people know, a guy named Clyde Fessler, tremendously creative. And he took me out to lunch. He says, Hey, let's go to lunch. We'll, we'll go grab lunch. And I said, sure. He goes, he says, Hey, I got an opportunity here. It's a promotion, but it's a challenge because we got to move quickly. And he, and I said, well, tell me about it. And he, um, basically to do the job, he gave me a ring binder. That was one of those big thick ones, about six inches thick that was filled with research and a lot of, a lot of options for logos and names and things like that. And he gave me a copy of the speech that he had already given to dealers saying, we're starting an owner's club. And he said, held up the speech and he said, we got to make this happen. And here is what I have for you to help you get going. But along the way, you know, that speech and when we started Hog, it had things that had never been been done before and would like. And I found out that I really love starting things. And because... At the time, so this is this would have been the fall of 1982. There were there were no places to rent motorcycles. You couldn't you couldn't rent a bike. And part of what Hog offered was what we called at the time fly and ride. 
and which is I, you know, I'm if I live in Wisconsin, I can fly to Miami, I go to the Harley dealership and I rent a bike. And we started with, I think, six locations, Hawaii and, you know, Orlando and Miami and a couple of other places. So we had to invent motorcycle rentals. There was, you know, like, like an automotive club, there was a reward. If you, if you, if you give information leading to the, you know, to finding a stolen vehicle, we'll give you, you know, a $200 reward. All we had to figure out how to do that. And there was a handbook, you know, of all the benefits, but there was also a map book where we used Rand McNally maps. And, you know, we took them and we added every single Harley Davidson dealership in the world onto the map. And the, uh, so we had to prepare that, you know, and then we had, you know, kind of the social aspect of it, which was, we said, we're going to do events. And, and so we, you know, so that was part of it. And so my boss, the, that launch took place in the beginning of September of 1982. And he said, by the way, we have to get this ready for January 1st, 1983. And so we had, and he gave me some resources to do it. And we worked really hard. And, you know, there was the part of that, which is that identifiable stuff, the logos. And I really, I smile whenever I see somebody with a Harley Owners Group patch on their back, you know, and, and the, even though we updated the logo, you know, before I had retired several years ago, we updated the logo and, and things like that. But to get that going and have those have that identity being about Harley Davidson, about being a Harley owner. But we were able to, you know, put the first members in the system about January 3rd, right after we came back from the holidays. And then we had all the the, the materials and the mechanisms put together you know, for the most part, but, but Harley Davidson had never accepted a payment from anyone other than a Harley Davidson dealer. So when I went to our, our accounting department and I said, Hey, I'm going to have a whole bunch of checks coming in and we want to take credit cards and things like that. And I said, we want to do this, right. We want to make sure it works within the systems and things like that. And it was the only person at Harley Davidson who ever pushed back on starting Hog was a guy in finance who's, who said, you can't take checks from anybody if they don't have a dealer number. So and it was like, no, but we have to, we've already announced this and we're, uh, you know, like a month away from rolling this out. And he's like, I don't think we can. And that was the only person that I had to go above their head to get things resolved. And the interesting part was, so this was a manager in the accounting department and his boss was the head of accounting. And it was a guy named Jim Zemer, who later went on to be the CEO of Harley Davidson. And so, and so the support, you know, at, at all levels at Harley was great, except for kind of one guy who just didn't, didn't want to have to figure some things out. It's funny. It's probably a hurdle you didn't even foresee of all the things you thought you might have to come up against. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, uh, you know, I thought the biggest problem was going to be the 800 number that Harley also didn't have at the time. And so we had, you know, it was 800 numbers, it was making deposits and things like that, but we kind of blazed a whole lot of trails. And that, you know, to me that, you know, that piece of putting things together early in my career really showed me there's a couple of passions that I have. One is about doing the right things for customers and engaging them in a manner that's authentic to what our brand is 
And then the other piece was kind of blazing new trails. It's like, I really like kind of starting from scratch. And, you know, because I just think you're, when you start from scratch, you don't have limitations of history of things like that. You know, it's like, give me kind of that greenfield project and, you know, and let me go at it. And, you know, and then I'll figure out the best way to do it. And and I can, you know, and bounce things off of people who may have done something similar before, but, you know, so I looked for those opportunities throughout my career to say, what else, what else can we get going on here? Right. So, that was your thing. You're innovative. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. So that was, that was fun. And I had, so in, you know, early on and my responsibilities with, you know, engaging consumers through hog and through test rides. And I had moved to a different role that I was, I was lucky enough that every time I switched jobs at Harley, it was because they tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, we need you to help over here. And so I was able to do, I did a few things during my career. And, and later in my career, when I had the best job ever, it was when I led in North America, all of our consumer marketing programs. So I had, I was, I had hogback and I had racing and I had events and test rides and I had our rental program, which had grown from fly and ride within hog to um, Harley Davidson authorized rentals and Harley Davidson tours and things like that. And that really was to, to, encapsulate in one area all of those direct to consumer marketing activities uh, that Harley was doing. And that was, I would say say that was the best job, you know, I had in my career because I had a great team of people that were, there were 50 some people working, you know, to deliver all those to consumers and through dealers. That was easy to get excited about because it was all the, I think it was all the best stuff the company did. Yes. Yeah. Well, it sounds as though you look at things from a customer's point of view each time and that's how you find out what is required what's needed you see the gaps in the whole thing and then you've you've managed to gather the right people around you to go ahead with what what your vision is you just don't want to disappoint people and everybody's different sometimes they're disappointed because you run out of the the pins you're giving away sometimes they're disappointed because you didn't communicate early enough and sometimes they're disappointed because you just didn't communicate at all and the other part of this too is we go right back to the discussion we had about passion and the, you know, people were like, could, you need to make sure you announce what is going on next year early enough so that I can tell my company when I want to take vacation. And it's like, and when I was told that by a hog member, it's like, holy cow, we are affecting people's <laughs> lives. You know, they are, they're like, taking their two weeks of vacation or whatever they get, they're saying, I want to use it to join you and all of my other Harley riders. And the, uh, and that to me said, well, you know, that just reaffirmed the fact that we have this obligation to, you know, to make sure that we're doing everything we can to, to help people, you know, to enjoy, you know, and, and to kind of live their dream and their passion for their motorcycle. So. Yes, yeah, not to leave them disappointed, as you say. And by then, I mean, obviously, you, the, the hog had now involved all of these events and you had training. And so all of those things Harley Davidson riders wanted to be involved with. And so yeah, they're exactly. planning their, their vacations around what they can fit in. You're right. And hog got very good at training volunteers as the hog chapter programs grew as, you know, and, and virtually every Harley Davidson dealer in the world sponsors a chapter of the Harley Owners Group. 
And they're all, you know, every chapter has an affiliation with a dealership. And, you know, it started in the U.S. and and grew. And so now it's pretty much every dealer in the world that has a hog chapter. And, got, and, and that means that if there's, let's just say there's 700 Harley dealers in the world, then there's a chapter director, there's a vice director, a secretary or treasurer, whatever positions they need. But we got good at training. There are training programs for chapter volunteers. They've gone through a variety of names, you know, and we want to make sure that the volunteers who said, I'll take a role, got the support they needed, got the help they needed, but then were set kind of free to go do great things. And I gave a speech at one of the training sessions, and it was about how hog changes people's lives. And the uh, so and it was because of the things we talked about before, because you surround yourself with a group of friends and it was a way to create a group of friends. And, you know, hog, if you're if you're if you want to do it, they pull you in and you can be as connected as you want. And, you know, from, you know, planning rides and things like that, people who just loved riding a motorcycle. And now we taught them how to plan a ride and how to, you know, bring other people along with them, things like that. Well, after I gave that speech, that was kind of the wrap up of the training, the week long, the weekend long training session. Yeah, I'm in the hallway saying goodbye to people. And at that event, I had two different people come to me and say, you know, when you said hog changes people's lives, I looked at my wife sitting next to me because we met through hog and this, and we both love riding our Harleys and this is the best thing that ever happened to us. And it was like, holy cow. It's like, you know, I was just talking about a friend base and an activity activities and things like that. But, and, you know, literally these are two people who connected through the Harley owners group. And it was at, at that session, this was in, in San Diego. And I remember specifically two different couples came up and said, we're married now and we're both volunteers in our hog chapter and we're doing it because we met through hog. It did change our lives. That's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> that would have given you a warm, cozy feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And then your comment about structure, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting because, so I'll tell you the, the story, the idea of hog chapters came out of a dealership and a group of riders who were passionate about their Harleys and about the Harley Owners Group. And they said, hey, we want to form a group at our dealership here. And the uh, so we're going to create a structure for it because we were so busy just getting going that we hadn't really thought about it. And I said, well, that's great. And they said, and we have a, a charter. And I said, oh, can you send that to me? And they said, sure. I said, well, why don't you fax it You know, back in the days? So it was 54 pages. 54 pages long. What they had done was they had taken essentially an agreement, a, a union worker contract, like local 605 of the electricians union. And everywhere where it said electricians union, they just crossed out and they wrote in the hog chapter connected to this dealership. That was what taught us that it's like, hey, we don't want to create a burdensome structure we want to create a structure that helps so we said hold off this you know we're gonna we're gonna create a charter that every dealership that wants to start a chapter can use so we said about we said we want a one-page document and so we framed it up for freedom you know that chapters can do what they want and you know and we said when you know if you're talking about officers 
I, you know, this was one, I always thought if somebody was going to volunteer for a, you know, to be a leader, we don't want the person that just wants to be president of something. So that's why it's a chapter director. It's not a chapter president, it's a chapter director. And we said, you can have these small handful of leaders and the rest of your leaders should come organically through your organization. So we did a one page hog chapter charter document and it has since grown because we've been asked for more structure on what can dues be and which we said yes you can have them but we don't want anybody who can't be a hog member because they can't afford the dues and things like that so the charter has gotten longer but we really worked hard to make sure that the structure of how do we create a hog chapter and, and operate it didn't become a burden of, well, let's go to page 26 of the charter to determine this, you know, it's like, go out there and have a good time, ride your bikes. And for a long time, one of my, you know, one of the people who led hog um, during, you know, for a long period, it was, you know, he, he was the best at, you know, as a gentleman named Mike Keefe, who said, we're about, we're going to ride and we're going to have fun. That's what hog does. We ride and we have fun. And we don't want to get burdened with too many charities, too many structured things, too many things that we have to do. We want to get out there and give everybody a chance to ride and have fun. Right. So that was the aim. Do all Harley customers know about Hog? Are there any Harley Davidson riders that wouldn't know about the owners group? You know, I would hope so. However, you know, you know, hope and actuality are often different. My thought is, Anybody who buys a new motorcycle should know because they get a, a complimentary one-year hog membership. So they're going to get stuff in the mail. And ideally, you know, the dealer that sold them the motorcycle tells them about the benefits of hog and, you know, and what, what they can do as a hog member. People who buy used bikes at dealerships, I hope they know about hog because they're in that same environment. And many dealers will even though the company doesn't give a complimentary hog membership to a used bike purchaser, many dealers do. They just say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to sign you up for hog because you're buying this bike. Fabulous. Yeah. Sounds like the dealerships are a really close knit group. They really also have the care, the customer care. Exactly. You know, if I, you know, and I've bought motorcycles from individuals, if, you know, and if, if you and your travels found a bike you loved and bought it, you may not hear about hog, but the, uh, so, but, Ideally, when you went to somewhere, you know, a rally or an event, you saw that hog members were doing something. So it was like that, you know, you would kind of with your natural curiosity might ask. And that's how you find out about hog. So, so if anybody listening doesn't know about hog, they can just go to their local dealership by the sounds of it. Exactly. Or that 800 number that we worked to start years ago is 1-800-CLUB-HOG. And uh, there's some great people that I know that are working there that are really good about helping people understand what it's like to be a HOG member. So Excellent. I'll put that in our notes as well. Um, and so later on in life, the electric motorcycle has been born. From a, a standpoint of doing something big in one's career, and, uh, you know, TJ, I think I might have mentioned this to you before, but I was, I, I got a call from our chief marketing officer one morning and it was another, I get these calls that say, hey, can you come and talk to me? And this, the, he didn't give me lunch though. He said, hey, come down to my office because I want to talk to you. And he said, I just got approval from the Harley board of directors to build a fleet of, at the time, they were prototype electric motorcycles. 
he said, Steve, I want you to build a brand experience. You know, the, the electric motorcycles are important because they will be part of our future. But we know that in, in when we do our research and our surveys, people don't associate Harley Davidson with innovation. You know, even though Harley has a list of things that were first, you know, they're first with electronic ignition, first with, you know, a bunch of different attributes to motorcycles. You know, they people don't associate Harley Davidson with innovation and product design. And he said, Steve, we want to take these motorcycles and we want to do two things. We want to give people a chance to test ride an electric motorcycle, which is important because that's you know, what many of them will have a chance to buy in the future. But more importantly, we want to package these electric motorcycles in an experience that focuses on innovation at Harley-Davidson. And he said, so he, you know, kind of unleashed me to say, go think about this and what would you do? And what came back was we actually had the, enough bikes. We created two traveling exhibits that really we where we flipped the script on Harley Davidson. There was very little black. It was all white. And the displays were white. The display and we focused on the technology in the electric bikes. And we focused on the other technology that Harley Davidson had developed. And we gave people a chance to experience the bike on a stand, what we call a jump start. And then we also had the fleet of motorcycles on each truck that allowed individuals to test ride a bike. And what it did was anybody who who enjoyed it came and experienced to that event, which we took to some rallies and a lot of dealerships over the course of three years, we got a chance to really inside look at the first version, you know, not only the live wire motorcycle, but a heads up display helmet. What would that be like? And how Harley Davidson has developed battery technology and how, you know, Harley Davidson uses braking and regenerative braking, you know, to extend the range of the motorcycle and things like that. So what we did was we took, you know, it, you know, this, we, we leveraged the electric bike, the existence of the, those prototypes that we could allow people to test ride, but also gave them an experience about Harley-Davidson creates things that you may never, never even see in looking at the bike and what gets us there. That's very clever. Yeah. So you saw that opportunities to, show, to showcase all of the technologies or a lot of the technologies, the Harley-Davidson, who, as you say, traditionally are thought of as more a historical or traditional company to show people the innovations. Yep, exactly. And, you know, and there's, you know, and this was, you know, on the, you know, on the electric bike platform, there was, you know, what I wanted to do after that is I wanted to take a similar tack and use it for the internal combustion motorcycles because there's a tremendous amount of great stories to tell on Harley's development there. And the bikes that Harley-Davidson are making now are the best technologically uh, you know, that they've ever made. And, you know, so there's a great story there too, but we leveraged Livewire to do that. And we were lucky enough to have a fleet of 30 some prototype motorcycles that the company built for us. And we took, we had two trucks that we built uh, that did the tours and East coast and a West coast tour in the U S in 2014 and 2015. And, and then we rolled, we rolled it into the year to Europe and Asia in uh, 2015 and the uh, so and they carried it through into 2016 as well. During the course of that time, there were over 10,000 people that rode a live wire, and I'm gonna guess that 
at least 95 plus percent of those people have never ridden an electric motorcycle before. And so in many ways, I think that program, you know, if electric motorcycles someday become the dominant, you know, type of motorcycle out there, there's a lot of people who got their first taste because they came and experienced that live wire tour. Yeah, that sounds like that for sure. It's, uh, I mean, those years you mentioned, you know, 14 and 15, that's ahead of most electric motorcycles that have uh, been since been developed. Yeah. And that was, you know, so the live wire, you know, the prototype live wire was ready for, like I said, we, we rolled our, our, our fleet out in 2014. So live wire development was advanced far enough in 2014 to create those 30 some, you know, prototype motorcycles that consumers could, could ride. Yeah, and that's impressive. It, it took a little bit more time to get them in the state that Harley wanted them to be in to roll out as a retail product in working on that tour and in learning because I, we had to send all of our, all of our team through, high voltage vehicle training, which it's like we never did that before, but they mm-hmm. taught us what were to happen if there was a problem with a bike, if like an accident with a bike. And I found out then that every first responder is trained on what to do if there's a crash involving an electric vehicle. And so, because you can't just if it's a, let's just say it's an electric car and there's a crash, you can't just walk up and touch the outside of the vehicle because if the battery is broken, the whole vehicle could be electrified. And so there are procedures that our first, those, you know, heroes out there who are first responders are trained in and have been trained in for many years so that they can protect themselves and the people who may be involved. So, but we had to go through, you know, you know, high voltage training and what, how to handle high voltage. So each fleet had, I think, 17 bikes and we had to build a demo truck that had the ability to charge these bikes overnight. And we worked with, you know, our trucking companies that we buy our, our equipment from, they had to put generators on the vehicles that were the biggest that they had ever put in vehicles so that we can charge, you know, use 220 to charge the, you know, the, uh, the bikes and that, you know, when we could, so we could open the doors in the morning and have fully charged electric bikes. And, you know, so all kinds of little things like that. And we needed to have them air conditioned because batteries, the big batteries like that do much better when they're cool rather than, you know, hot and we did demo events in Arizona and places where it was really hot. So we had, you know, so there was a whole lot of, that was going right back to that, you know, give me a, you know, something where we start from scratch and then we'll figure out the solutions. So it all comes down to a team and I had great, you know, teammates, you know, that we could really go, okay, how are we going to handle this? And some, a couple of guys, you know, with military backgrounds who were logistics guys who really were good at, you know, at solving some of the issues. And, you know, so we had, you know, that was, and I would tell you, that was one of the most fun projects that I've ever worked on because it was so, because it was big and we knew it would be big and and important for the future. But because it wasn't just about a single model of bike, it was about the, the view of the company. And we did, and there was follow up, follow up research on that. And we know that that, you know, that rating on the word innovation, you know, was higher, you know, after, you know, we were out there for a couple of years talking about the ingenuity of, you know, Harley Davidson and how they put this together. Yes. Well, it was, it sounds as though you put a whole experience in front of people. I mean, you must've been thrilled at seeing people probably quite surprised at the live wire and the electric 
innovation of Harley Davidson when all they thought of before is the traditional look. Exactly, exactly. And especially the skeptics, you know, the people who said, you know, I don't know why I'd test ride one because, um, you know, I'd never won an electric bike. I can't see any value to that. And the uh, so and then, you know, they got there and they it may not have been the thing that's going to replace their soft tail. But I think that the experience of riding one and, you know, seeing the power that, you know, with the, the initial live wire prototypes were zero to 60 and 3.6 seconds. And they were tremendously fun to ride in, you know, even when you found out, you know, that you kept reaching for a clutch that wasn't there and, <laughs> you know, and then you got, you know, it's like, wow, I don't have to worry about anything except twisting the throttle and having a good time. <laughs> and, you know, so it was, you know, so the skeptics that came off of it and said, I won't give up my electric glide but that sure was fun you know that's a there's a victory there too i can imagine then when you get home you just plug it in <laughs> yeah that's right that's right and it's cool to be involved in something and and have something futuristic as well yeah yeah it really is so the uh and that pulled together several of the different you know things that you know i had worked on one of the things we used for that the experience in the the display was what we you know we called a jump start, which was a bike essentially locked in place with the rear wheels on rollers, and it had, you know so it fit with what we were doing with Livewire, but we invented that as a means of so many people the resistance to being able to thinking they could ride a motorcycle, not just a Harley, but a motorcycle is. I don't know how to use a clutch. I've never driven a car that has a clutch, you know, a manual transmission. It feels like it's really hard and I don't necessarily want to learn how to do that. And so this would have been at a time when we were trying to expand our reach to new riders, you know, people who had never ridden a motorcycle before um, and especially female riders. And the, uh, so this was, again, my team in experiential events. And it's like, what can we do to take that fear of learning how to shift a bike away? How, how can we, you know, negate that so that, you know, that that doesn't stop people from learning how to ride a bike. And it was a great team that I worked with and we thought about it and we, played around with, you know, a few different things. There's one of the people that worked, you know, for me, a guy named Chris Urban, great guy who we went and he and I worked really hard on this and we created, we, we didn't want anything big and imposing. We didn't want a giant thing around us that would, that would scare people off. It's like, holy cow, I got to get into this big machine to get this experience. And we simplified it to be a, you know, a platform that grabbed the front wheel of a real motorcycle and the rollers on the back so that the rear wheel could turn and our best presenters and inviting a non-ride somebody who had never ridden a motorcycle before to get on that bike and we could our best presenters could teach people how to use the clutch and the throttle and the and their left foot to shift and could do it in in about seven minutes and, you know, you could take somebody who had never ridden a motorcycle and said, I could never use a clutch, I could never shift. And with the right coaching and the right, you know, the right help along the way, they could be on the bike shifting up and down 
you know, with their rear wheel freely rolling in, you know, some people took 10 minutes or stuff like that, but it was an experience. And we got to explain gauges and, you know, where all the, you know, the uh, things were, it was a no risk uh, environment because the bike wasn't going to go anywhere. And if you slipped and twisted the throttle too hard, it wasn't going to hurt anything. And the, uh, so, and if you clutched wrong and killed the engine, it's like, that's fine. We're just going to, we'll start it up again and we're going to try it again. We'll get it neutral and we'll go from there. And that's an experience that stays with, you know, Harley Davidson, um, you know, throughout, you know, their events now, and especially important as far as training, they're in dealerships, some dealerships have them. And so that's an awesome introduction, because you don't have the fear, as you say, I mean, a, a lot of the time, and it can take a long, long time to get used to that, finding the yeah. bite on the clutch. Yeah, and that's it's and a lot of crushies big, normally. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's such a big barrier to people saying, it just seems so hard. And the uh, so it's like, well, we're going to make that we're going to take that barrier away. We're just going to going to do something so that somebody can walk away from there and say, I, you know, I may not ride a motorcycle, but it's not going to be because I don't think I can use clutch. And they, uh, so we had, and that was, it was funny because my nickname that Willie G. Davidson had given me with my last name, Peel, he would, Willie G. always called me Peel out. And they, uh, so, and Matt Levitich, who was the CEO of Harley at the time, was calling the the jumpstart that he named it. He was calling it the peel out machine because he knew <laughs> it was the, you know was involved. It was the team that I was working with that did it. So it's like you know, so back in in the back of you know somebody's brain, you know, that's the peel out machine, and it's like, and if that got thousands of people the you know opportunity to learn to ride, that was like you know that's a victory there too. That's awesome. You could do with a peel out logo. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's part of the history. Yeah, you're right. And so now you're no longer with Harley Davidson. You have your own company, Authentic CX LLC. And, you know, you use this as an avenue to share all of your skills and knowledge that you've learned over the years with many other companies. So, yeah. So when I, I retired from Harley Davidson in 2015 and, uh, and started my own company, and I was I was blessed enough to be able to retire when I was uh, ready to, you know, kind of flip the page and do a little bit, you know, a little bit different uh, activities. And I really built the company around customer experience. That's the CX. And one of the pieces that has ta taken an even more prominent role than I had expected was communication. There's, there's pieces of all of this that come together, you know, for my clients. So my clients, range from, I've done work for the Medical College of Wisconsin and some of their consumer engagement activities. I've done work for companies in other industries, but, you know, my passion is around, you know, my biggest clients are Tucker Power Sports, a, a you know, distributor of almost every motor, moto product you could think of, Vance and Heinz, one of the best brands in the industry and great products and great people and great, great history of learning, you know, coming right off the track with Terry Vance and Byron Hines. Um, uh, companies uh, from, I have a handful of companies uh, from overseas that I, that I help their uh, consumer interaction and communication. And, and then a company called Kirsch Helmets, which is new technology and helmet design and it, they right now they produce a half helmet it does not use any styrofoam inside it's a you know, silicone bladder with liquid silicone inside and what it does is it allows you to have a smaller helmet 
It looks like a beanie helmet, but it meets DOT requirements. And uh, we ride it on a motorcycle. It's like wearing a baseball cap. It doesn't give you a lot of the lift and pull that a traditional beanie helmet or a traditional DOT helmet would. And they are, you know, Kirsch helmets are in about 80 dealerships around the country right now and expanding. So I help them out. But my work now is I find it really rewarding because I feel like there's a lot of smaller companies that can use a little bit of the help and the, the, what I've developed over my career and the history that, you know, that I've, you know, had and learning the industry, learning, you know, what's important to customers and then how do we communicate that, you know, t- through the media, you know, and direct to consumers. So, yeah, that's my take from you. You've spent, you've had huge successes. I mean, Harley Davidson, everybody can see the huge success there and you've been behind so much of that. And now, I think I think you have the ability to see things from a customer's point of view, and as you say, bringing in the communications, getting that across to the company, and then having the company engage with their customers or their potential customers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it and it comes down in many ways to 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 you know the the reason I named it Authentic CX is because you you need to understand who you are as a company, as a product developer or designer. You have to understand that, and then you you have to communicate and act appropriately, act authentic to to your mission, to your product, to your yourself. And that's a critical part of, you know, of helping companies survive. And so often small companies, and there's so many small, great companies in the power sports industry, there are brilliant designers and brilliant inventors and tremendous thinkers. And, you know, but the other piece of it, just having a great product doesn't make it sell. And so it's helping them with getting the word out about their product and helping them with getting the word out about who they are and why their skill, their knowledge, their, their who they are and what they've gone through makes this product richer, better, stronger, and more appealing to consumers. There's a lot of great products out there that failed because they were great inventions that didn't have the backup to get the word out. And so I say it, you know, I, you know, if I always think if I can help companies be successful, you know, by helping them communicate. I'm not creating anything for them that they don't have. I'm just highlighting things and sharing them with the right audiences. And, you know, that if I can help companies do that, and the other thing, if I can connect people that will be more happy or successful because they know each other, that's like a big victory to me as well. Yes. Company to company. Yes, exactly. As you say, communications, yeah, Authentic X certainly is uh, the type of connection, for want of another, a word that all product producing companies need because I've come across things and thought, oh, why didn't we know about this? Why isn't it out there? And uh, This is why people can invent things and produce them, but then to get them to the potential customer is quite a big step. Yeah. And it's hard work, you know, because again, you know, brilliant inventors, I've seen people do things with their motorcycle that it's like, oh, that you could sell a million of those, yes. and, you know, but it's like, but you got to get the word out and you got to find the right way to, to have it manufactured so that, you know, it's affordable and things like that. So it's like, there's, you know, it's hard work to be an entrepreneur. And that's where it's like, if I, you know, if I can jump in and help people, that's really, and especially when they're, when they're getting going, you know, or they're expanding or doing something new, you know, Tucker Power Sports is doing a lot of new things and they're really focused on 
their ePower product line. And, you know, and whether you think that we're going to be on ePower everything in the future or not, there's some really fun products that they have. You know, they have some great e-bicycles and, you know, I, I ride bikes and I found my having an e-bike makes life a lot easier. Oh yes. And, you know, <laughs> and we have a great time with our, with riding e-bike. And Yes. I'm in that club. <laughs> yeah, so there's, you know, and the, you know, electric scooters and skateboards and things like that. So, and to me, those are all things, they're mobility products that somebody who goes to a motorcycle dealer might be interested in. You know, we, we're about going from place to place and, you know, and whether it's a, you know, a bicycle or a scooter or skateboard, if that's the right thing, you know, Tucker's made available to, you know, to their thousands of power sports dealers, the ability to bring those in and have them through a trusted supplier like Tucker. So, you know, when they announced that I was involved to help them get the word out about that. And, you know, they've done great things as far as expanding that. And so, um, you know, and again, not forcing anything on anyone and not saying we have to go one direction or another. It's about having, you know, making sure that there's cool stuff available for people who just like to go out and have fun. Yeah, it's just sharing the knowledge as well. I was speaking with some people from Tucker and I was surprised to find the amount of products that they are actually putting out there. They're a huge company. So they are. And there's other there's other great companies doing, you know, similar work to them. You know, I have friends, you know, I have friends throughout the industry. Some work for, you know, the companies that I don't work for. And, you know, but, the you know, to have good trusted suppliers for, you know, things. If I'm a dealer, you know, you find that trusted supplier that can get you what you need when you need it and help you serve your customers. I mean, that's a really important thing. And I know that, you know, Tucker is, is, you know, doing that. I really like the sound of what you're doing, your job, actually, your, your whole thing is, is very um, up my strata, as (laughs) as we say, up my street. And there's another friend of ours who uh, is involved in the Formula One Powerboat Racing Buckshot 77 is the company and he invents things. And that is exactly the sort of thing, as you said earlier, you'll look at it and say, hey, you could you could sell a million of those. <laughs> I'll have to put you in touch. <laughs> yeah, so and I'm happy, like happy to help, you know, and this is one of the things where, you know, I'm pretty well versed in the power sports world because I've been in it for so long. But now I have you know, a few different clients, Tucker, one of them and a, and a couple of others that are involved in bicycling and, you know, so both e-bikes and, you know, and regular bikes. And so I've just been, you know, getting, working up my, you know, experience and connections in the bicycle world and which is really exciting. You know, again, I like new things. So for me to be able to jump into that has been, has been really fun and, you know, building my connections and, you know, in the bicycle world and better understanding, you know, the important things there. So it's, you know, it's been great. And I wanted to also ask you about all kids bikes because I see that you're an ambassador for all kids bikes. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, so that is such, you know, I was again, so honored to be, you know, to be asked to, to help them. So, you know, All Kids Bikes is a nonprofit that is really focused on helping uh, young people, kids in kindergarten, you know, learn how to ride bicycles. And, it, you know, a lot of people would say, you know, what's the big deal? Because, the, you know, because everybody learns how to ride a bicycle, right? Yeah, kids and bikes go together. <laughs> so they do. But you know that there's a tremendous, especially lower income communities where kids don't learn how to ride a bike. And in and, and part is because they don't have access to a bicycle. 
And, right. you know, as you know, bicycle, when, when I was growing up and maybe you too was just a critical thing at a certain point, you learned to ride a bike and that's how you went and saw the other, your friends. And you, it was a natural process. They were passed down from one child to another. <laughs> and there's more and more kids out there who don't have the opportunity to learn how to ride a bike. And so what this does is it takes, it's a curriculum and it's balance bikes and pedal bikes that go to a school and they, they'll outfit a school so that the kindergarten or first grade teacher as part of the physical education program can teach the kids how to how to ride a bike. It starts with a balance. Wow, that's fantastic. It starts with a balance bike and it moves up if the child is ready to a pedal bike. And, you know, it provides helmets and the stuff that to make it a safe experience. And the and I just think that, you know, because Number one, we know that bicycles feed motorcycle training. To take the Motorcycle Safety Foundation course, you have to know how to ride a bicycle. That's the balance part. You have to come in with the balance part. And then the other part, knowing that there are so many kids in the United States right now who don't have access to a bicycle or to learn, that's even more important because it's it's a life skill for, you know, TJ, for you and I, that's a life skill that we learned as a child and, you know, we have, you know, going through our whole life. That's a skill we want people to have because it's about mobility, you know, and mobility can mean success and, you know. Your first taste of freedom when you can cycle down to the shops on your own and you're allowed to. Exactly, exactly. And so the, uh, so I was so um, happy when they asked me to be involved in that program and helping raise visibility and awareness. And I'm a real believer in it. And, you know, they've done really well. There's, there's, and I can't remember the exact number of schools that are, that are equipped with the curriculum and the bikes, but the, you know, the stride folks from uh, you know the strider bicycles are have driven this and it was it started with you know their foundation pushing for it and all kids bikes is just a great thing and and so if people have the opportunity at a rally at an event or 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 if somebody were to hear this and say I want to raise some money so that my local kindergarten can offer that program you know that's where it's like help me because they even have programs to help parents do fundraising. And, you know, so they're, you know, have become sophisticated in the support that they can provide. And I think, I think it's a critical thing. It's just one of those things that makes life better for a lot of people. It sounds great. And most companies, bigger companies or smaller companies have some sort of charity donation that they put forward each year they could sponsor one bike and have it in one kindergarten as part of with a logo on or something for just a few thousand dollars you can equip a school you know to do this and you know and it does make a big difference yeah yeah so people who want to donate or um, people who need that sort of service if kindergartens are listening i'll put a link in the show notes as well so people can get in touch with you that'd be great i'd be happy to help however i can we'll get we'll get more kids riding bikes out there yeah and then we'll have more potential motorcycle customers. And we'd love that. We love to grow the world. Yeah, you're right. It's been fantastic speaking with you. Is there anything else that you'd like to um, put out to our listeners that we haven't covered? Thank you very much for the opportunity. You know, these, you know, it's a little bit of a trip down memory lane. And, you know, I've got a million <laughs> stories that I can tell. And, you know, and so many, you know, friends made along the way and, you know, things like that. But it's really interesting to see 
you know, the power sports world now, especially where we both are in and, you know, and there's such great motorcycles out there now. I mean, everybody makes great motorcycles. It's not like you go, oh, that's a bad brand or anything like that. Everybody makes such great bikes. And whether you're into adventure biking or motocross or, you know, just taking long trips, it's like there's a bike for you out there. And so I, you know, it's, it's just an exciting thing. And it's one of those things where it's like, I wish everybody just get the experience on two or three wheels, you know, because it, it, to me, it's just so much fun. And I, you know, somebody asked me over the weekend about how do you describe your, you know, yourself? And I, and I really said, I said, as a communicator and a traveler. (laughs) And uh, so, and because both of those things are important, you know, to me and, you know, my travel, the, the best travel comes on a motorcycle and whether it's around home or on a long trip to Sturgis or, you know, in another part of the world, it's like that, you know, that's, it becomes part of who you are. And I think that's who I am. You're a motorcycle guy. I like to think that. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely speaking with you. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Thank you very much, TJ. Great chat. Bye now. 